Welcome. My name is Steve Hall. I'm the Senior Director of Digital Product and Technology at T-Mobile. Uh, that's a new role for me. Um, recently, uh, before that, five years for five years now, I have been the leader of the cloud team. I'm affectionately known as the cloud guy at T-Mobile, but I've passed that torch on to Nick. Uh, yeah, and I'm Nicholas Chris. I'm a senior manager on the Cloud Center of Excellence team. Uh, specifically, I have the platform services and security team. And a little background about the two of us. We've known each other for about 20 years. We've been kind of in the uh, uh, startup community in the Seattle area. And so uh, it was a big change for us coming to a large uh, company. And um, when we did move to cloud, it was with the idea that we're going to bring that startup mindset to the enterprise uh, and take a new tack towards solving some of those problems. So before we get into the really fun stuff, uh, let's take a peek at how this all really started. I'm sure people have heard that T-Mobile is, quote, the uncarrier. The uncarrier started about 2013 when John Ledger wrote the uncarrier manifesto. And the manifesto is just like any other manifesto. It was in designed to inspire our workforce and to get us thinking about transforming the company in a good way. One of the major tenets of that was get to know your customers, listen to their problems, and solve their pain points. And that is how we got moved into transforming not only the brand of our company, but moving into what do we have to do to transform our technology. Go ahead there. Yeah. And so uh, you know, to that end, we started to realize as a technology org that uh, if we wanted to deliver on that promise we made to our customers of being the uncarrier, we were going to have to make some fundamental changes. And uh, um, so I'm going to take my cheat sheet out because my speaker notes are missing here. Um, so what that meant to us, fundamentally changing, is that uh, uh, we don't look at ourselves anymore as a telecommunications company that occasionally has some interesting technology. Uh, we are first and foremost a technology company that happens to do mobile. We do video now. And we do a lot of other cool things. And so uh, just as the uncarrier is really about disrupting a broken telecommunications model, uh, internally we felt we had to disrupt a broken IT model. And to that end, our goal was to become a world-class software development organization. Um, and really where we are now is about radically rethinking everything that we do in the organization to optimize towards delivering awesome user experiences for our customers. So what does it take to do a transformation? The, if you look at what's on the slide here, we had to do a lot of things. Um, and the cloud was a major driver for these transformations. But I, I'm going to talk briefly, because we don't cover it in depth here, I'm going to talk briefly about some of the cultural changes that are interesting at T-Mobile. So the manifesto pretty much drove our thinking of how do we do things differently. As Nick said, how do we uncarrierize the IT department? How do we move forward? And, and culturally, you have to do a couple of things that are really important. You have to look at what is a domain and why do you have one. So what's important about a domain? We're like any other IT group five years ago. We had giant monolithic systems. How do you break that up? We literally broke up the organization into domains, and we continue to break it up to get smaller and smaller so that the pieces are more manageable. Yes, microservices is a part of that, um, that solution, but at the end of the day, it's getting organized in a way that works really well. 
We also moved from an IT organization. I think we were officially EIT five years ago. Then we moved to something that was called Digital Transformation Development. And earlier this year, we actually merged product teams and technology teams together. So we are now product and technology as a team. And that is a big win because now you don't have competing resources working against each other. Everybody has the exact same goal when it comes to creating a product. Whether the product is an IoT device, or it's the T-Mobile.com website, or the T-Mobile Tuesday app, everybody is there to solve that problem. We don't have blurry boundaries between the teams anymore. It's really nice. And then finally, roles clarity. It's another big un unlock for T-Mobile. Roles Clarity, we had, uh, I want to say, somewhere over 160 roles at T-Mobile uh, two years ago. We went through an exercise where we clarified all of the roles, and I think we're down to about 35 now. We simplified it. There's a software development role. There is an architect role. There are not 40 variations of those things, okay? You're in that role. So what does this have to do with AWS? The bottom line is, we started the cloud in the cloud journey five years ago, and as we were learning how to deliver in the cloud, deliver cloud-native solutions, we started talking to Amazon and say, how did you do that? What did you do? Guys like Max Ramsey, uh, Tom Erickson, they came out to T-Mobile, they met with working teams, they met with leadership, they met with a, a lot of our senior leaders and said, here's how we broke apart our monolith. Here's how we got to API-first development. Here's how we got to microservices. And the interesting thing about it is, at first we were like, hey, why don't we just take that and go do it, right? That doesn't work, because T-Mobile is a different company. We have different problems. We have different skill sets with our people, everything. So as we work through that problem, getting the roles straightened out, so a software developer is a software developer, a tester is a tester, that sort of thing became very easy for us. Um, what we're going to talk about in the rest of this is some of the technologies that we're going um, going forward with. Yeah, and so uh, Steve touched on some of the key points uh, along the path of transformation. It's worth calling out before we dig into some of the milestones on cloud that cloud has really been the key uh, driver and enabler for us in, in many of those areas. So for example, uh, when you look at uh, Agile and API first, five years ago when they decided let's go do this uh, proof of concept on this AWS cloud thing, uh, we took it as an opportunity and said, okay, if we're going to do this, let's also go ahead and prove POC doing agile development uh, as opposed to the traditional waterfall model that had been uh, the, the default at the company. Uh, when we, move, when we uh, build solutions on cloud today, they must be cloud native and API first. Uh, the company doesn't have any uh, mandate to lift and shift or to migrate out of the data center. We, we leverage the public cloud for the agility and that it requires you to build things in a way that can take advantage of it. Uh, even when we talk about things like uh, the domain model, we uh, consider centers of excellence as part of that model as well. The cloud was one of the first COEs. Mm -hmm. And um, even uh, product-driven development, uh, before the, the move was public, going from uh, product to technology together, internally we felt we had to move off of that model of uh, everything is project-based and short-term. And instead, we want to build products and we want to develop those over time and keep improving them. And so even internally, we say we need to have a brand and we need to have a message and we have to go sell that. Because from my background, I, I hate the idea of trying to go and just get something mandated as the enterprise requirement. If I'm going to have somebody using my platforms, it's going to be because they want to be customers and they're happy and they're delighted by the, the, the product that we offer. 
so with that, what you see on the slide here is kind of a progression of some of the key milestones we've had that we've gone through as we've been on the cloud for the last five, six years. Um, when we started, it was legitimately a novelty. Everybody was pretty blown away by the idea that you can log into the AWS console and you can click a few buttons and provision a machine. Because in our world, there was a SharePoint intake and you might wait a few weeks, you might wait a few months to, to get that infrastructure. Um, very quickly, though, we realized that's not going to work for us in, in production and, and we would, needed to get smarter at automation. So we got better and better and better and kind of the final logical uh, endpoint of that uh, phase is really to 100% infrastructure as code. And so uh, at that point, we had an idea which we called uh, zero to hero. And it's the idea that you can hit the metaphorical big go button and one continuous chain of uh, automation is going to get you from zero, which is an empty VPC that has nothing provisioned in it, to hero, which is uh, taking production requests without any other intervention. That's the point when we really started to think of ourselves more as a software development org than, say, uh, uh, infrastructure teams or operations team, and uh, I think really saw the acceleration at that point. And so things were getting better, but we ran into one very painful anti-pattern, which is infrastructure as code is great, but you have a lot of uh, systems which are very similar, but they're just different enough that you keep building the same things over and over again. Those zero to hero pipelines and automations were just different enough that you had to keep building them. And uh, in addition to that, what was worse, you kept solving the same problems over and over again. So I don't know if anybody here has ever built a system where you might be stuck for days or a week on some uh, blocking problem in, in the environment and ultimately you end up finding there's some configuration value the equivalent of you know, broken equals true. And all you gotta do is turn that value off and now suddenly everything works again. We would run into that situation and you know, six months or a year later, another team would go through the same days or week problem because information wasn't being shared. So that's when we really made the decision that we have to do more than just build automation and software, we have to build platforms. And so the, the idea there is you take that hard-won knowledge, you build it into the platform, and then everybody can take the benefit of that at the same time. So, it was really interesting to watch Andy Jassy this morning. I, I don't know if it was the second or third slide, but she, he was talking about his, the EC2 instances, containerization, and Lambda. We, we penned this uh, probably about 18 months ago. This became our strategy where we're looking at, okay, as Nick said, the problem is IaaS is fantastic. It skilled up our workforce. We loved having it. It unlocked a ton of maturity for us, for sure. But what we noticed was we can do better and we can do better when we have these platforms. And so this is the end state. It's aspirational. Um, early, early adoption of this thing is showing that we do have significant cost savings. Time to deploy, a lot faster than we used to have even in IaaS. Um, so when you get to the far right and you are on Lambda, it's fantastic. Um, you can see that the business value goes up. Our customers like it. Um, we, we have a big metric at T-Mobile we call time to value. And it's basically from the moment something is approved to the moment it goes out production, we measure it, okay? And so we have a funding model at T-Mobile, I'm sure all, all the big enterprises do, but the funding model says, yes, you can go spend money on solving this problem until it goes there. So we measure that. 
and we look at it over time and say, are we getting better at what we do? And, and I think we don't give our KPIs. If you guys aren't setting KPIs annually, highly recommend those goals and KPIs that are, are measurable because that is a big unlock for us. One of ours was time to value. Um, operational maturity, far easier to operate in the container world, far easier to operate in, in the um, Lambda world, serverless world, than it is to operate in IaaS. Um, we have bare metal, it's never going away at T-Mobile. We have virtual machines on-prem, it's never going away at T-Mobile. Um, we do have a PaaS solution. We use um, Pivotal Cloud Foundry on-prem to get cloud-like capabilities on-premise, on okay? Um, we use, what is EKS for our container stack, and we use Lambda exclusively for our serverless at the moment. Um, one of the interesting platforms that we've built on top of serverless is called Jazz. And this is open source. It's very interesting technology. Um, what happened when we got into Lambda, and we're heavy users of Lambda now, and what we learned was all of the operational readiness stuff you have to do, AWS really can't help <coughs> us with that. So one of our developers got, got fed up with it one day and said, I need to do this better, and he started building Jazz. I think he's sitting right there in the front row. Satish, welcome. <laughs> um, and he said, nuts to this, there's a better way. And so he built Jazz, and the idea of Jazz is really just to have a platform where we take care of all the details of deploying to a Lambda function given the T-Mobile uh, security, compliance, and governance restrictions. Okay, so it's very simple. And what's really nice about this is getting back to time to value, what we care about most. Our security and our enterprise risk teams will sign off on a Jazz deployed function far faster than they will sign off on a function written directly to Lambda. It's just the way we are, we're, we're conservative, we wanna make sure we're doing everything right, um, but having an opinionated platform like Jazz that says here's how you do it, here's your logging model, here's your security model, everything like that is fantastic. And I wanna mention this again, it, it's open source, everybody in here can use it, it's pretty cool, you can see everything comes in the front door, it, it, it's kind of a standard AWS architecture when it comes right down to it, but everything comes in the front door through Route 53. We use S3 buckets to store information. Kinesis is a big part of this solution. This thing's been sitting around. We use Elasticsearch also, but it's been sitting around for, when did you deploy, Satish? Probably two years now it's been out there. We open sourced it about a year ago. So check it out. Please use it, contribute. It, it's fantastic technology. will save you a lot of <coughs> headache with your governance functions at, at your enterprise. Yeah, so I'll just add a little more color on Jazz here and then just touch on a few of the other uh, platforms we've been working on at T-Mobile. Uh, so definitely the, the key thing is to take care of all that extra, uh, the side pieces uh, around operational readiness that um, uh, really brings us to the original promise that got us so excited and why we were early adopters of Lambda of focus on your code and let the platform do the rest. And so the, the fundamental way Jazz works is uh, it's integrated into the, your workflow with Git. And so when you do something, for example, like create a new branch to work on a feature, Jazz is gonna stand up all of the stuff you need in a dedicated environment, keep you from stepping on each other's toes if you have multiple folks working on the same uh, parts. Uh, you do a commit to that, uh, uh, merge that branch, and it's gonna deploy for you. And all of the other pieces are handled by Jazz. So the, the goal, and again, it's a relatively young project, but the goal here is that when you create services in Jazz, 
uh, as a developer, you can focus on your IDE, your Git command line, and then the Jazz interface, and you don't have to go to all of these other systems in order to deploy, orchestrate, you know, stitch the pieces together. Um, we're not going to dive into all of these. Uh, definitely, if you are interested in some of the um, lower level details, we'd encourage you to come to our booth, uh, talk to our folks. We have the technologists for many of these products available, and they're uh, super excited to talk to you. Um, you can go to uh, the opensource.t-mobile.com website, which will be further in the slide, and there's a lot of information on our open source uh, projects. Go to the repos, star the repo if you're there, please, and read uh, some of the details there. Um, I'm going to quickly touch on a few more of these. Uh, so T-Vault is a, a system we built to uh, simplify secrets management for developers. Uh, it's really a layer on top of HashiCorp Vault, which we're fans of, that makes it easier for application teams to integrate. And the idea we have is we want the easiest path for developers to be the secure path, because otherwise you're going to end up with secrets stored in clear text, and that very quickly uh, leads to uh, data breaches. Um, uh, Next directory, which uh, if you had attended, there's a, a, another session that was just earlier today, um, is a proof of concept. We did the initial stages of it and spoke about it last year at reInvent, and the idea is it's a directory service uh, and a lot of other components similar to like an active directory. But on the back end, we're recording all of the uh, information, the changes, and also the actual roles and groups and users and the rules that say who can belong to which group and who's been approved. We store all of that on the blockchain. And the goal is that uh, we believe we can save significant number of man hours in uh, the types of audits and controls that we normally have to do on identity systems. Uh, at T-Mobile, and I think there's other large uh, companies probably have a similar experience. Uh, we end up spending tens of thousands of man hours a year just auditing identity platforms alone. Um, I'm going to finish up on this slide with PackBot, which is our most recent uh, open source offering. So kind of going A to Z, Jazz was the first thing that we open sourced uh, last October, and then this October we brought PackBot out. And um, the pack in PackBot is policy is code, and the, the key idea of this was, you know, uh, Staying compliant was never ideal, even in the on-prem world. Uh, this is kind of my very sad way of describing the, how the world was. You get a bunch of people in a room, they will argue about what the policy should be, and ultimately come up with a Word doc that may or may not be uh, ambiguous, right? Then that gets uploaded to SharePoint and mostly forgotten. And in, in the best case scenario, you end up with a situation where there is an audit team that's trying to prove that at some point in the past, you were sort of compliant with some ambiguous definition. So that's a pretty miserable place to start. But uh, for cloud, even that was not attainable. If you are in a world where machines are coming up automatically every minute, and you know, at T-Mobile, I think the last time we checked the stat, we had something like 200,000 unique instances in the last uh, 10 months. And so we needed something that was just end-to-end -end automation. And so the way PackBot works is, all of our assets are auto-discovered, and then the canonical definition of what a policy is now is the code itself. And there's metadata attached to that, so you can go into Pac-Man and there's a knowledge base of what the policies are. But the definition of the policy is, the, is actually the rule. And that's continuously checking, uh, are you compliant or not? If you're not compliant, it's opening a, an issue, and the only way you can fix that issue is if you go ahead and fix it on the ground. There's no concept of opening and closing ServiceNow tickets, for example. There's an exception system, but you're not allowed to create permanent exceptions. 
And then the most exciting part for us is, for the most critical pro uh, policies, we've started creating auto fixes. So the idea is if you're not compliant, we can actually run an auto fix to make sure that you are. And uh, the first one that we did was pretty salient. Um, you may remember last year there was a, uh, a large S3, a large customer data breach with one of our uh, competitors because there was an open S3 bucket that had a lot of customer data in it. Um, our our uh, leadership was understandably concerned and they asked us what our exposure was and we were uh, able to give them detailed information about uh, our, our uh, surface area because we had this real-time monitoring and then at that time we went and implemented an auto fix so that today as a developer goes and creates a new S3 bucket that's open to the internet he's going to very quickly get an email that explains he needs to go and either opt in and explain that there's an exception and that it's public data like a website or if he doesn't do that it's going to be shut down automatically and so we started with that. I think we have uh, 10 or plus uh, auto fixes at this point, and it's, uh, it's one of the things that helps us sleep a little bit better at night uh, in our security responsibility. And so uh, just like Steve said, we're not going to deep dive into all the architecture, although there's quite a few of the PackBot uh, team members here. You can uh, come by our booth and speak to them. But uh, a lot of Amazon services, again, uh, leveraged here. So just to uh, call out a few, uh, a lot of the rules pieces are driven by CloudWatch rules. Uh, we make heavy use of Lambda and uh, AWS Batch for orchestration. On the data side, I think Steve might have already quoted it, but for us, most of our cloud challenges these days really are big data challenges. So we make heavy use of uh, Redshift, Elasticsearch, RDS, and S3. And then when it comes to actually executing rules and other uh, parts of the Pac-Man platform, we're using Fargate for our containers. Yeah, I, I want to add one thing to what Nick was talking about with, with PackBot, um, and it involves sleeping at night. We, uh, we've done this presentation several times now, and we were with a group a couple of weeks ago, and one of the enterprises was talking to us. They still literally have tickets to launch EC2 instances, and they have to wait up to 72 hours to actually launch an EC2 instance. When we first started in the cloud, we said, we don't want any of that. We want it as wide open as possible. So if you want it wide open, you have to figure out how to control the costs and how to make sure it stays secure. That's the problem, the fundamental problem that PackBot helps us solve. And it continues to emerge. I mean, as you move into containers, how do you control container sprawl? How do you make sure you're controlling your costs? All those things. So those KPIs and those metrics allow us to, uh, PackBot allows us to control those in, in a way that's meaningful to the enterprise. And before you... Um finish one last call out, I think. That, so the S3 was the one that was super exciting to us. But another one that might sound kind of boring, but is, is really useful. I think a lot of other large organizations would be in the same um, boat as us. But all of our governance really is just dependent upon tagging. When it comes to understanding your costs, understanding your security boundaries, it, it's only as good as the accuracy of your tagging. And so the, uh, the auto-fix rules that are able to go and understand from other heuristics what the correct tags should be have saved us, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of man-hours, and uh, the, the ability to call out the ones that are not compliant um, uh, also is a, is a big piece there. So open source, uh, something I'm very, very passionate about. Um, so. There's three ways to use open source. I think we all know them, but I'm just going to walk through them uh, because I think it's important for us and it's important for you guys to learn depending on where you are in your maturity and in your journey to the cloud and actually getting more involved in digital. 
and that is we felt that we have to get to what we call world-class developers to get our jobs done and meet all the objectives of T-Mobile. I mean, we are going really, really fast. I didn't cover some of the stats earlier. Um, the growth of T-Mobile based on the uncarrier marketing plans. 2013, we were 34 million subscribers. 2018 Q3, we're 77 million subscribers. Our churn, customer churn, 1.02%, the lowest in company history right now. And JD Powers, they do three wireless customer satisfaction surveys. We've swept all of them for the last two quarters. So the Sun Carrier thing is moving. We have to get better as a technology team. That's what open source helps us do. So to be world class, open source is world class. So you can use it. We use quite a bit of it at T-Mobile. Linux is open source, Cassandra, Kafka. There's all kinds of open source solutions out there. We use many of them. Right now, we have not shut down enterprise solutions or vendors that create enterprise solutions. We still love our support models. But we're starting to experiment with, hey, what if 10 or 20% of our stuff went to uh, an open source version of Linux instead of going to a vendor supported version of Linux. And you start looking at the economics of it and it's actually fantastic. But it's not just about money, it's about skilling up our resources and making all of our developers, all of our testers, everybody in technology better. The other thing you can do is contribute. We contribute to the Linux Foundation, we contribute to the Hyperledger, did I say it right this the time? Linux Foundation <laughs> Hyperledger Project. Yes, Hyperledger Project. Um, Getting involved in the community. What, the, what are the benefits of the community? Obviously networking, learning from others. And it is world-class development. These solutions that are getting pushed into open source at a more rapid and rapid pace these days, they're good. And they solve our real-world problems in the way we want them solved. They're not some per single person's interpretation of what my problem is. It's built by people who live my problem every single day. And that's why we believe in it. And so that's why we talked about Jazz, our first open source solution. We had several in between and we talk about PackBot going there. We want to get into that space. We want people to know that this is what we're doing. And for all you guys in the enterprise, these are useful. You know, We can all solve some of these problems together without vendors selling us something that we use maybe 10 or 15% of, which is a very common problem. At least at T-Mobile, it's a very common problem. So. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just kind of coming back around here, hopefully uh, it's clear that we really love what we do. And uh, uh, one second here, let me do this. You have to be passionate about this stuff. You have to care about it because meaningful transformation can't really happen from the top down. You have to get the ground level support from your developers and from all of your ICs in order to do this right. And when we looked at it, you know, I wasn't here six years ago when the uh, uh, Uncarrier journey started, but I will say I've been a T-Mobile customer for like 20 years. I always quote that, I'm a fan. But I have to imagine that when, uh, when the Uncarrier strategy was developed, they didn't go and have a bunch of all-hands meetings and say, okay, everybody attend your training so now you understand what Uncarrier is. And I don't think that would have worked that way. Instead, we set a high-level vision and we said, this is who we want to be. And we started to market and brand that vision to the outside world. That same messaging uh, really applies at the same time to your own employees. 
people look at what you're doing and how you're uh, um, starting to uh, radically deliver differently for your customers, and they say, that's, that's awesome, you know what? I think that's who we are, I wanna be that. And so in the uh, technology side, we're taking that as kind of the same model, which is for years we have been doing uh, lots of great, innovative, cool technology, but it was all locked up inside and nobody else knew about it. So now with the open source, it's a chance to not just get more work done and, and build, uh, uh, you know, leverage more on top of that, but by sharing it with the community, uh, you can get both other folks in the industry excited you can potentially you know, uh, get talented people to come and work with you to, to support it. And then our own existing staff who's trying to understand what that cultural transformation should be, sees all of that happening and says, that's cool, I think that's who I wanna be, that's who we are now. And so uh, I think with that, we've left a good amount of time with Q&A, which is I think where it really gets more interesting. Uh, I'll let Steve wrap up. So before we get to Q&A, just uh, really quick. How many T-Mobile customers out there? Awesome, <laughs> thank you. Seriously, I'm not kidding you. Um, John Ledger has a team of people who watch his Twitter feed for complaints from you guys. You have a problem, you send it to John, it will end up with us <laughs> sooner or later. Not complaining, we care. We care about our customers. Uh, any veterans out there? Show of hands. Thank you for your service, gentlemen. Um, and then finally, I really want to thank AWS. They have been there for us since day one. Um, I was there in the early days of the cloud. Uh, we didn't know what the hell we were doing half the time. Uh, the transformation of our, our staff and, and our organization, that's all in part uh, attributable to AWS and them coming and teaching us and talking. And they're, and they're not the only people. We went and talked to Netflix. We go and talk to every single technology company out there. And we have no illusions to be a competitor to Netflix or anything like that. Um, but in the enterprise, we are aspiring to be kind of like the Netflix of enterprise. We want to get there where our devs know what the hell they're doing and they're high quality and they're really driving and our product people are passionate about the solutions that they're building and solving our customer problems. So with that, thank you all, but let's have a few questions. There's gotta be a few out there. We'll, we'll try to give you some honest answers. <laughs> we have two yeah, microphones in the, the aisles mics, yeah. here. Hi, I was wondering why, uh, what went into the decision of going with uh, Pivotal and versus like Red Hat or some other vendors that are out there or just we'll plain? Let me take that one, Steve. Yeah, it, you know, the, it's really interesting. One thing we didn't touch on, the transformation for us was a little bit of top down, a little bit of bottoms up, and, and you know, until we meet in the middle, things go all over the place. Uh, Pivotal, we did some POCs on Pivotal. Uh, I was not, we weren't part of the, the decision to make that happen, but it was, it's the right decision for T-Mobile at this time in that we have to get these cloud capabilities on-prem. Uh, on-prem, quite frankly, it's taking us three to six months just to stand up servers. It's ridiculously slow, right? With Pivotal, we just keep jamming the stuff underneath there and it's independent of the, the unique um, decisions. But we were looking for that pass model. We have a vision at the end of the day. Um, we want app developers building applications. We don't want them thinking about networking, we don't want them thinking about infrastructure, we don't want them thinking about logging, we want them building solutions for our customers. And so Pivotal helps solve that. So I can't really answer the question of what the criteria was. 
uh, it happened and one day it was just like, but hey, I, we're going to do Pivotal on-prem. But there's a lot of good reasons why we're doing I it. I think it's worth mentioning too though, you know, first of all, we don't want to paint like a super rosy picture, like everything just went perfectly fine <laughs> and it's easy because that's not the case at all. Yeah. And it's also not, there wasn't like one team that sat there and created the master plan strategy or even when there is a strategy said uh, that we're gonna be able to do all of this in one step. So I think the idea is there's multiple teams all with the understanding that here's the goal we wanna get to, the end point, and some things uh, are happening in parallel and some things are understood to be transitional steps too. Yeah. Are you a Pivotal user? Uh, no, actually we're, we, we've gone with Red Hat, so. Mm -hmm. Hey, hi, my name is Atanshu and I'm from Capital One. Uh, first of all, uh, congratulations on this fantastic presentation. It was really inspiring stuff. Thank uh, you. Thank you. I had a question for you. So as a financial institution that's also on this journey of um, embarking onto the cloud and, and being a technology first company, um, I would love to hear more about what T-Mobile's philosophy is around uh, sensitive customer information, NPI information, and how you deal with that on the public cloud. I'll take it. Sure, yeah, and I, I just wanna, uh, to call right back, we're fans of Capital One, what they've been doing, and we're looking at that when we figured out our own journey to open source. Um, we, we still want to know why you're here, though. We didn't stop by your booth yet, so you need to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, frankly, so most of the time, we introduce ourselves as the plat uh, cloud platform services team, and the and security, I don't know if that's a metaphor of a bolt-on, the and security, but our team, uh, doesn't sleep at night over security. We, we're not just uh, a checkbox. We really want to be bar raisers. And we want to do it while at the same time uh, not slowing down the development teams, the, the, you know, our primary customers. And so it's not a perfect world at all, but the way that we do it, and our background is all of us were software developers and, and sm smaller companies, is really more and more automation. The idea is that if you can automate the uh, the uh, compliance side, you can be lighter weight on the, on the governance side, the traditional governance side. And so that's really where we're going. Um, it took us a long time after, you know, PackBot has been internal. We started that about two plus years ago. It took us a long time in that development to finally pull the trigger on an active auto fix in production because we had always worried that people were gonna you know, cry bloody murder when one of their production systems was taken down because a rule, whether it was correct or not, shut down one of their uh, components. But what we found is, and, and we, we did this very methodically, uh, we went from uh, dev environments to lower environments on up the stack until we got to uh, the production environments and worked hand in hand with each application team so they understood how the rules worked that were affecting their systems. But what we found is, um, uh, there was a lot less resistance and uh, general uh, um, acceptance of the model of an auto fix. And once somebody has been shown that for one fix, they completely get it for the 10 other fixes. And for example, S3, it's the exact same design pattern for every one of the major services that we use uh, that you worry about being open on the internet. And so right now our team is actually just going through the backlog of, we've, we've done the analysis, what's like the 90% of our uh, footprint on what services and we're going uh, uh, service by service and en enabling those rules. And so that's really where we uh, uh, just kind of double down and triple down on the strategy is because it's, there's the scale and dynamicness of the cloud is too big for you to be able to do anything effective through uh, human-based audits and, and reviews. I must echo what was said, right? Very inspiring, and I must commend you for this, right? I have three questions. 
Uh, first is, what percentage of your workloads today are in your own data center versus running in the public clouds? That's first. Second one. Uh, we'll do one at a time. One at a time. We have very right. short memories. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't forget we're managers now. That's so. right. Yeah, we're <laughs> I, I want to make sure I remember my questions so too. Qu yeah, question, question number one. Yeah, I'll remember one, um, you remember one, and he'll remember okay, one. Okay, I'll take number that? one. You can go to number two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're looking at about 20% right now. It, in the cloud? 20% of our workloads are in the cloud. I'd say it's probably inched up a little bit more than that now. It's between between tw under 25%, yeah. Okay. Second question is, can you walk through the journey in terms of, you said, right, you're all cloud native, uh, you're all containers. Did you have to refactor your applications or is it born in the cloud applications? How did you go through that? Yeah, that, that was, uh, first of all, that was a very contentious conversation five years ago. Um, everybody wanted to lift and shift. And what we realized early is you can do a lift and shift, folks. You really can, and you will get benefits, okay? But you never really unlock the cloud until you rethink how to build your applications. And you get to API first, you get to cloud native, and you actually start thinking about breaking up into pieces. And that's where the magic really starts happening. Um, so we just literally, we made it a rule. Okay? If you want to come to the cloud, and it slowed us down tremendously five years. If you want to come to the cloud, you will rewrite your application in cloud native based on the 12 factors that we've, we've allocated it to what a cloud native solution is. And if you want, don't stay on-prem. Now, that's kind of a carrot and a stick. We, we, uh, so back then, we had a cloud governance board. And so we had a lot of detractors. So everybody looked at this as, yeah, nobody will go to the cloud because the bar is so high, right? But when you have to wait three to six months to get something done, you start rethinking, well, what if I go rebuild this website in the cloud? It's an easy website. Let's just go put it in the cloud. I can get it done a hell of a lot faster. Um, so you start seeing that behavioral change. And, and that's why I kind of drilled in on the cultural stuff a little bit. Really, the behavioral change and the decision making that we have to have at the lowest levels, that's the real problem of getting to the cloud from my point of view. The technology is all learnable. We have smart people. I'm sure all you guys have smart people in your organizations. They will learn the tech. And, and Force them to rethink about how to do the tech. To clarify, too, it's not all containers and serverless. There is plenty of IaaS still there, but there's no lift and shift. And it, it's not the, like there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for all the companies. But for T-Mobile, for example, we are a telecommunications company. We have network infrastructure. We're not going to be closing a data center anytime soon. And so uh, they're sticking around, and there's models that make sense uh, for folks to stay there. And as we said in the beginning, uh, for us, the reason to go to cloud is to unlock that agility. And so we're really just kind of preventing ourselves from uh, shooting ourselves in the foot by uh, allowing those kinds of solutions in. Good, thank you. So, and the final question is, I think you kind of said, right, there is no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Same goes for clouds, right? We all love AWS, but AWS doesn't solve all the problems. What's your perspective on multi-cloud? Do you want me to take that one? Am I allowed to answer that question here? The, the, the AWS uh, guy's going to tackle us? <laughs> okay, I don't want to get thrown off stage. We are multi-cloud. Okay, so we consider Pivotal in our data centers a cloud. We do some work with Azure, and we do most of our work with AWS. Um, it, it, it is really interesting when you start looking at it. We have a website which is nothing more than a decision matrix of, matrix of when to use which cloud, right? At the end of the day, you get a lot of personal preference. 
People say, oh, I want to go to Azure. Why? Why would you want half your data over here and 10% of your data over here and 90% of it over here on AWS? You know, so there's architectural reasons to stay closer to single cloud. Um, and, and let's face it, it, it's somewhat of a mitigation. You don't want to overcommit to one or the other. You know, that's gone through our heads. We've talked about it. But we, we are multi-cloud, but we are, I, I can't give you the ratio, but it, we are massively slanted toward AWS, to be honest yeah. with you. I mean, Nick said 200,000 instances in, in 10 months. That is really, really big. It's a, a lot to manage. Yeah, I think we can, we can share a little more color, which is we are, well, first of all, I mean, it, it's, it's not even just um, BS to say that we are big fans of Amazon's customer service. Uh, they've been great partners with us. When we have big releases like iPhone releases, which you see some very interesting scale happen quickly, uh, they're in the room with us and, and they've always been there. To that, the technology stacks uh, can be different and there's complementary, there's pieces that we prefer on one or the other. Um, as Steve said, the majority of our uh, infrastructure today is in AWS, but there's a couple big workloads that are on, on uh, the Azure side. And uh, we're always looking at uh, other options as well. So uh, it's important to us, I think, just uh, number one, to, to stay plugged in on the latest technology. We like there to be healthy competition on the cloud. And then this is another part of our thinking about uh, the open source work that we're doing too. So um, I won't make any uh, bones about it, like full transparency. All of these uh, open source products that we have out there today are beautiful, 100% AWS native architectures. They use all sorts of uh, every service you can imagine on those charts. And uh, we're, we're fans of them. But our roadmaps for all of them is the ability to integrate and to, and to help us uh, uh, leverage those operational capabilities multi-cloud. So for example, on, like on the PackBot side, I'm really excited. We've been speaking with some other companies that we stay in contact with to find that company that's like the, uh, the mirror of us in terms of percentages of infrastructure on Azure. Because if they're wanting to focus mostly on uh, Azure compliance rules like we do today on AWS because it's our low-hanging fruit, we can share each other's work by contributing to the open source. Um, on the roadmap for Jazz is the ability to uh, d deploy all of these services, not just um, in, in AWS and Azure, uh, but we've done POCs on Google, and we fully intend to have support this in the data center, too. Okay, any other questions? So oh, here comes another one. Yeah, uh, thanks for the work you're doing around the open source and all. Uh, being a telco company where uh, availability and reliability is key to what all the telco were doing you know, for, for many years, uh, what do you do for chaos engineering? I saw on your open source some tools around PCF, uh, the Cloud Foundry, and uh, you know, getting some chaos tools. For the AWS, what do you have? What are you using? Do you plan to open source it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm glad I have a lot of tech people here in the front row. I, I think our chaos engineering right now is pretty immature. We're not doing a lot in that space yet. Uh, we do a lot of um, failover testing on like our direct connects, and we do some regional testing there, but we don't do application chaos, you know, chaos monkey, chaos uh, this, There's a few stuff. teams. He's referring yeah. to the latest project that yeah. uh, uh, leverages some of that. It's, it is very new to do the chaos engineering, and some of that comes from uh, just the, the maturity of our uh, platforms and others. It's just maybe a, a conservative mindset. But uh, there is a lot of interest in, uh, in this now, even at the leadership level. And so uh, we look to be contributors to some of these open source projects as we uh, develop on that model ourselves. Yeah. Any other questions? 
All right, well, oh, one more. Another one. Um, did you guys manage to move like your subscriber data management platform into the cloud? And if so, what, um, what database technologies did you leverage? Do sub does subscriber Sub data live in the cloud, I think is what I heard. Yeah. I yeah. The answer to that is no, not yet. There's, there's, uh, we're doing good in our journey, um, but we still have uh, some folks who don't believe any of our sensitive data should go to the cloud. We do have some, like all of our device diagnostics data comes through the cloud. We have other things that come through the cloud, like our shopping experience, that sort of thing. Um, but right now, not subscriber information. I think that will be one of those long pulls because as a telco, that's it, man. That's like the, yeah. the crown jewels of the We've been very systematic, company. though, of going through from the systems of experience, which majority now are in the cloud. Uh, I'd say a large, uh, maybe majority, or at least half of the systems of integration are yeah. uh, in the cloud today. And then some systems of record, but not the customer systems of record. I have a second question. Uh, do you guys use infrastructure as code, like the CloudFormation templates mixed maybe with Ansible yes. or Terraform? Yeah, we are heavy, heavy users of infrastructure as code. It's a requirement now for any, you know, we're, we're heavily biasing net new solutions to be uh, containers and serverless, but if you're going to build an IaaS application, you must do infrastructure as code to go to production. And that is, that's, that's CloudFormation, it's Terraform. It can be, you, you're allowed to pick any of the tools you want. You can use AWS command line if you want, but you have to have what I like to call the, the big button that you push it in and you can go end to end. So you guys commit the code as well and do revision control on it? Yeah, we have yeah. a traditional full CI CD stack and uh, <laughs> that triggers the deployments. Yeah, I would add, Nick mentioned early the, the, earlier the, the concept of zero to hero. If you can't automate the whole thing, you sh really shouldn't be doing it. All the tools are there, you just need to do it. Uh, we, so now that we're in QA, we can actually maybe just tell that interesting story. So uh, <laughs> talking about how cloud has been at the forefront of some of the agility stuff, and there's a lot of parallels between the cloud uh, journey and the uncarrier journey. Um, we're excited that there was at least a few uncarrier moves that happened. These, these are the big announcements that we do, and there's a PR around it that would have been super difficult to do, if not possibly uh, impossible to do without the cloud. And um, uh, I'm thinking of the one. Do you want to tell the story of the Super Bowl one? Sure. I'll do that. Uh, Super Bowl 49. I'm a Seahawks fan. Very depressing Super Bowl. Uh, we lost in the last play of the game. Um, but we, what we did there is it was one of our on-carrier moves called Data Stash. And we did an immersive uh, video social media um, campaign with Kim Kardashian. So the idea was you would tweet Kim, and Kim would send you a video of her tweeting you back, and then you would get pictures of her was the idea. And it was, it was as far as marketing campaigns go, it was pretty interesting. Um, but marketing came to us 10 days before the Super Bowl and said, we're in trouble. How can you guys get this thing done? So we looked at the system requirements, and we needed to launch 5,000 video servers and 100 utility servers to make this thing work. So without automation, you know, we put a small team together. They automated the hell out of the thing. By Saturday, we were literally pushing a button that could go from about 100 instances of this thing on up to 5,100 and back down again for the event. 
Um, we knew exactly when the first ad was going to run that announced this thing, because these on-carrier moves are big. You go from zero to massive numbers very quickly. Uh, so it was end of the first quarter, and so we launched like probably 15 minutes before the Super Bowl. Saw that, we saw the big spike, we saw it start trickling off. The next ad came out, we saw the big spike, saw it start trickling off again. Um, by Monday, everything had trickled down to like almost normal levels. So we shut down like 90% of the assets. By Wednesday, I think we shut down another 5% of that. So we were running about 5% of what the massive load was. Um, to Nick's point, we couldn't have done that in the data center. We shut it all down three weeks later when the campaign kind of fizzled out and it cost us like 150 grand. And I, I mean, think that an interesting... is like super cheap and it's awesome. Yeah. It's one of those things where you just get totally jazzed that you were a part of, you know, because it's kind of like it felt impossible when they gave us the, the opportunity, but then it was like, it's an uncarrier move. You got to step up. You got to figure it out. Yeah. And um, I wasn't there at the time, but I hear this, that story a lot. And my understanding <laughs> was, you know, it was infrastructure's code, but it was not, this was early for us yep. and was not by any means end to end. I think there were a lot of humans probably having their fingers in those pieces. Um, but they got it done. That's yep. the key. You fast forward a few years later to uh, 2016. We, uh, next, uh, on a carrier move was called T-Mobile One, which was a new simplified plan structure. And this was one of the earlier projects that was going to be really end-to-end, -end, like not a human being touching anything. And we're working on the new version of the uh, public website for T-Mobile. It was not supposed to go live for months later, but they came back and said, hey, there's an uncarrier move coming. We can't tell you what it is, because even internally, it's very secretive. We never hear about them ahead of time. Uh, but we're, we'd like to do it on the new site. And the idea is John Ledger's going to be in Times Square and he's going to announce it. And when that happens, you know that there's going to be a massive spike of everybody going to the site at once to see the plans. And so we looked at the, what, the analysis of what they thought the stats were going to be and said we were going to need about 1,000 servers launched on the system that was not in production yet. And they came back to us with this ask 24 hours before the, the uh, release was going to, the announcement was going to be made. And, um, we said yes, we can do this before we even figured it out. That's our mode of operation usually. Say yes and then go back and figure it out. But uh, because we were really pushing this as the first 100% zero to hero solution, uh, we didn't spend that 24 hours configuring servers and debugging infrastructure. We spent it trying over and over and over again to publish 1,000 servers. And uh, I remember it was actually, it was, uh, it was 24 hours and 40 minutes to when I <laughs> promised the VP in charge of that the deadline, so I got a little bit of crap. But what happened was that the 40, extra 40 minutes was the amount of time it had taken from when we pushed the button to doing brand new uh, 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 VPC with all the infrastructure launched. They came before we did the release and said, there's one more thing too. We can't tell you what the move is, so you can't have any of the content until John starts talking about it in Times Square. So. We went that night, we just uh, did a couple practice runs, and we were pretty confident because we knew the automation worked. And so he gets up there, he's talking, we hit the button, and it's pretty exciting. You know, everything goes off without a hitch. That repeatability is really the essence of it. Yeah. Yes, uh, appreciate y'all sharing this. A uh, couple questions. Uh, we're doing EKS ourselves, so can you talk a little bit about your EKS journey, where you are on it, what you're utilizing it for? And uh, secondly, can you give me a better deal on an upgrade from my phone to an iPhone 10S? <laughs> you know, it, I, there are people here, if, if you have any kind of T-Mobile problems, we will connect you to the 
to the, uh, I know you're joking, but we have a, a, a concept <laughs> inside the company called uh, Frontline First, which is that we are all there first and foremost to support our customer support org, yep. and then secondary, uh, we're all there for our customers. So um, if, if a customer is having a difficulty, it doesn't matter if I'm a cloud guy, I should stop what I'm doing and, and, and find the right person to, to help you solve your problem. Um, with that, the question was uh, containers and what's our uh, EKS strategy, uh, uh, if I, to uh, paraphrase there. So uh, we went on uh, heavy into containers, I want to say a good, we're coming closer to two years now, mm -hmm. and that was based on Mesos Marathon. And now we're kind of doing the second generation of our internal orchestration platform, and it's, it's, it's all uh, starting to standardize on Kubernetes. But because of where we are in the, the journey and where the platforms are, we have not said we're going to mandate one particular managed service yet. So internally, we use uh, EKS. We are uh, looking at PKS, where we have uh, multiple stacks that are just open source K8s running on traditional IaaS. And um, over time, we believe that these will uh, start to normalize. Um, but today, we haven't made an, an all or nothing bet, bet on any one of these strategies yet. Uh, there's a question in the back there. Got one over here, too. Oh, okay. First come, first served. Yep. Um, <laughs> sort of to, to build on what he was saying about EKS, um, what are you using Fargate for? So why would you deploy to Fargate as opposed to deploy to maybe an on-premise Kubernetes or to EKS? Yeah, so I think the Fargate, Fargate is just along this, this, and this is specific to PackBot. I, I can't speak to the other teams that are um, uh, using Fargate at this point, although I'll, I'll connect you. I think the idea there, and especially because it's open source, we want something that is relatively plug and play for anybody else who is uh, setting up the PackBot infrastructure. So today you can go to um, the open source site, download it, run our installer, and it's going to end-to-end -to -end stand up everything you need to, to run PackBot. And make no bones about it, I'll, I'll just, like, full disclosure, if you're a small startup or a garage and you have one account and maybe a few thousand instances, you're not going to want to run PackBot because you're going to spend uh, hundreds or more a month to run the PackBot infrastructure itself. But if you have, you know, tens, thirties, we spoke to a, a, another company we were friends with that has 1,500 accounts, you need PackBot. You can't sleep at night without it, right? But uh, in that mode, we wanted to have something that end-to-end -end can work and reduce the dependencies on some of our other uh, T-Mobile open source products. So, for example, I didn't want to uh, have you need to use our orchestration framework, which is integrated into our Kubernetes stacks, right? Or even specific T-Mobile integrations on the managed service providers. Um, question with, <clears throat> with the different domains and the product teams, how, how does T-Mobile, um, how did you roll uh, standards out across those different teams? How, how did that work? That, that is an interesting question. Um, so, first of all, it's hard. And even breaking up the domains has been really hard. Uh, we are starting... So API first. Every domain has to expose API to their consumers. We have what we call Swagger Lint tools, which allow us to maintain compliance across the API boundaries. Within the box right now of your domain, we're not very mature at measuring that. It's usually done through audits, whether it's a security audit or an enterprise risk audit. We don't have any tools to help us internally there. We do a lot of code quality scans in our CI CD pipeline. 
Uh, I think the tool is Fortify. We do security scans of the code. In there, we do external security scans and pen tests. So all these things come together. We're, we're not very mature there, but we're getting better. It is worth mentioning on the, um, so we talked a lot about how Jazz gets, uh, uh, simplifies those operational readiness tasks, but we really look at Jazz as the place where we want to um, push folks to do their API development for a variety of reasons. Number one, because it is a, a the services are based on templates, so when you create a new service, you get all the scaffolding in place uh, to kind of have an operating, for example, when you create an API service, your hello world version of that, uh, of that function is operating and, in, and can be used in production instantly before you've edited one line of code. That gives us the opportunity to take some of the opinions we have about what are good guidelines, what is the, the good um, practices in any individual service, and put that into the default code. Then on kind of the other end of the spectrum, the integrations we're talking about, so when you're in the jazz world, we're trying not to expose the underlying CD, CI CD to our developers. They just shouldn't have to worry about those pieces. And so uh, we have a few uh, integrations today and we're gonna be going forward with more integrations that do things like the security assessments. So um, for example, earlier this year, our team did uh, some, other, some work that I think will eventually be open sourced around what we call a Swagger Lint tool. And so it goes and it runs a series of rules that tells you, you know, how, uh, uh, what's the quality of your swagger. That's directly integrated into Jazz. So as you're writing your function, you can actually see there in the interface what your score is and what your recommendations are. And we think that's a model that's going to um, work well for our developers. Next question. Thank you for sharing your cloud journey with us. I would like to ask two questions. The first one is, being a Seattle-based company, how do you compete with Amazon in terms of recruiting talents and building up a team? Because what you're doing here is very unique in that the skill set is not well available. Uh, second question is, what configuration tools are you using um, if, for example, if it's Ansible or Chef or Puppet, which one did you pick and why? Yeah, the answer is, to the second question, the answer is yes. <laughs> I, uh, I think like a lot of big companies, T-Mobile never met a tool it didn't like and, or buy, so they're all in there. <laughs> but we try not to be too, um, too prescriptive. I'd say the majority is, is um, Puppet, but you see some Chef and you see some Ansible. So is there a centralized team that handles that? There is a centralized Puppet team for on-prem. There's not a centralized Puppet team for um, cloud. Right. So to the first question, um, it's, it's not specifically an Amazon problem. Uh, Seattle is really difficult to hire talent. Um, so we, we have a problem with everyone, everyone up there. I mean, you do have Amazon, you have Google, you have Facebook up there, you have Microsoft. Uh, Expedia is right across the street from us. Believe it or not, Starbucks is attracting a lot of talent lately. So it, it's a tough market from a hiring perspective. Um, we've shifted our strategy a little bit. We're trying to find more people right out of college instead of trying to find the, the folks that have been around a little longer. It helps us kind of undo some bad habits and actually groom them the way we want. But it, it's a, hiring is tough. I don't know if anybody, any other city is any better I've uh, been traveling to Denver a lot. Denver is a mess from a recruiting standpoint. It's so hard to get talent in the door. Um, so you start transferring everything. I'm going to steal yeah. the last, last Take minute. Take the last, we've got 90 seconds. Yeah, so I mean, I'm a hiring manager, and yeah, it's, it can be brutal because you have every major cl 
cloud provider there, and you have all sorts of other really interesting tech companies. But the answer to the question of, what, question of what, what are we doing in that space really is all of this. I mean, the reason we're here is to get that word out that uh, we're a technology company. Uh, most folks, they're surprised we're here. They, don't, they haven't considered us that way. And kind of the second half of that is, uh, you know, internally at T-Mobile, sometimes a lot of other managers come and they're really excited about the stuff we're working on. Every once in a while, it gets maybe a little bit uh, bittersweet, and they'll say, yeah, but you got it easy. You got this awesome rock star team, and you guys get to work on all the fun stuff. And I get that, but what I usually say back to them is, nobody said you can't make your stuff fun. I mean, I think, why are we building anything if it's not fun in the first place? Because you're going to make something that's miserable for your customers, right? And so what we're trying to do is innovate. You can't solve the problems the same way you would in a startup or a garage with two guys, but you can take that spirit and apply it to these enterprise problems. And if you have something exciting to work on, it goes a long way towards motivating people. Because I know as a developer, it's like, maybe I'm generalizing too much, but after I've had like my food, shelter, and housing, it's not nearly as much about like what, what is my uh, compensation package. It's, it's always been about, is there something meaningful to work on as well? Okay, we're out of time. I think that's it. Thanks, Thank everybody. You all.